So glad to be with you this morning. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, worship team. What a job they did this morning. Let's praise God together for the worship in God's house this morning. Amen. Today is family worship, so your kids are with us today. I think that Hope put together a, um, a little worksheet for them, and if, if you need one, you can hope you can raise your hand and come, come get one from Hope if you need a worksheet to help with your sermon notes, kids. My, my little daughter was asking me, how do I do this crossword puzzle just a second ago? I said, honey, I got to go preach. Maybe your mommy can help you with that. But um, we are excited for this kind of last part of this series. And um, I don't know about you, but I'm challenged every day when I open up the word of God. And see the beauty and the greatness and the goodness of our God. I'm challenged. And um, I've been challenged in this series called Treasuring God. And, and I hope that you have too in a good way encouraged. When I say challenged, I mean encouraged by the word of God. And how great and awesome our God is and worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our worship. My, my prayer throughout this series as we've looked at the biblical view of giving is that God would open our hearts to the wondrous joys of giving and what it really means to give from a pure heart unto the Lord as an offering of worship unto Him. In the, in the first sermon of our series, we looked at God's vision for giving as it's not under compulsion or meant to be a duty, but actually come from the heart as we invest in the, the kingdom of God freely and willfully and joyfully as we give with a cheerful heart. Last week's sermon, we, we saw the story of Cain and Abel and the, the heart of faith in Abel by giving his first and his best and how actually giving protects our hearts or guards our hearts in worship unto this great and loving God. We saw Cain's heart, which led to destruction, did not guard his heart. He became selfish and jealous, and the result of that was leaving the presence of God. Today we open up to the book of Malachi, the great Italian prophet, Joke never gets old. I actually heard that from one of our people. But uh, Malachi, as uh, these words are from the Lord um, 400 years before the coming of Christ. And Malachi um, actually speaks these words, and then there's a silent period until there's a man wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and honey. His name is John the Baptist, and actually Malachi predicts that John the Baptist would prepare the way for the Messiah. But in Malachi's book, he is summing up the Old Testament, the failures of the Old Testament saints, the turning of God's people away from his law, away from his statutes, and he's actually pointing the people to the coming one. 
So I'm going to read uh, just a section before we read our text this morning in Malachi 3, 1. I'm not going to have you stand yet because it's not our text, but I want you to get this picture of what Malachi is talking about before we read our text. So Malachi 3, 1 says this, Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you will seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as in the former years you see I titled this sermon Giving in light of the cross. Because that's the only way that we can give in which we are pleasing unto the Lord. As if we have Christ driving our hearts and our minds and who we are. And we are worshiping this great, great God. Because of what he has done for us upon the cross. We're looking to Jesus, the one who takes our reproach away. So look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 with me. And uh, another not easy sermon to preach, but it's enjoyable as the Lord has laid his word out for us. So stand with me as we read Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. And we'll go through 12. It's on page 802 in the Bible in front of you. If you need to look at that, please do as we read God's word together. It says this, Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the fields shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts as he speaks to his people through the prophet Malachi. You can be seated. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word this morning. May it challenge us, Father, as we begin to look at 
the truth of Scripture. Father, give us a heart for the things that you love, that you desire. Father, increase our faith. Father, give us wisdom through your Spirit. Convict our hearts where it needs to be convicted. Encourage us, Father, where we need encouragement. Give us peace and joy in your love. And let us give with our focus upon Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Obviously, you've probably read this passage before. You may have, have, have debated it with someone in the church or talked about it with someone before, and I get the question all the time, does God require a tenth or a tithe? Which is a tenth? A tithe is a tenth of income from this passage. Just really want that yes or no answer, don't we? Does God require a tenth of our income? You know, the, the question comes about in our everyday life. How much do I have to do, right? It's like an acquaintance who invites you to their wedding, the celebration of their union, two people becoming one. This is the moment in which they, they are celebrating before you and an acquaintance buys, or you, you, acquaintance invites you, you get the wedding invitation, and you go to the registry, the gift registry. You go, I, I don't really want to sacrifice much for this wedding. So what can I do without looking cheap to get some gifts, right? I, I, know, I know you guys. I, I know myself as well. And so you go with the ladle and the pizza cutter so that you can bundle it together, right? And that's sometimes how we view our giving in our life. Not just giving finances, but giving to our kids, giving to our spouse, giving to our job, giving to our neighbors, giving to our church, giving to people, and giving unto the Lord. Sometimes we just ask the question, how much do I have to do? There are fa many facets to the question, does God require a tenth? And the simple answer is no. Christ has fulfilled the law. We are no longer under the law. But let me ask you the question in a different way. Is God glorified by giving a tenth of income to Him? You'd have to answer that question, yes. We're not under the law. But will He not bless you in your giving? The principles still apply. You, you see, uh, the Old Testament law, a lot of times Jesus changes the question. Jesus says, the law says, do not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say, how can you glorify God with your life? He says, but I say that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He also says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, how far do I have to not go to commit adultery? 
And Jesus says, but I say, glorify God in your marriage. But I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lust intent has already committed adultery with her in their heart. You see, we can obey the law without having the right heart. Jesus looks deeper into the recesses of the heart. And we look at the law in light of the gospel of grace and we find that our God is glorified in not only a tenth, but an extravagant heart of giving in response to this great grace of God through Christ that He has poured into our lives through the Holy Spirit. This is giving in light of the cross. So look at, with me at, at Malachi chapter six, or 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The first point this morning is this. The Lord is faithful even in our unfaithfulness. The Lord is faithful even in our unfaithfulness. This is a short summary of the Old Testament right here in verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. God calling his people, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God's people have not been faithful. You see it all over and over again in the Old Testament. It's interesting in, in this study, it, it's exactly what the people promised in the days of Nehemiah that actually Malachi addresses. Their marriages, their, their heart for giving, their covenant with their God, all of these things. Nehemiah and the people have said, we will do this. And yet they have been unfaithful. To their God. Yet God has not destroyed his people. Why? Because the Messiah is coming. Because God himself will act. There was a great revival, and I've already said this, but there's a great revival under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're actually going to move into the book of Ezra next, which is going to be an incredible study. But there was a great revival unto these godly men. And now a hundred years later, Malachi lays it on the table in this book and he exposes the wickedness of the people's hearts and calls the people to the one who is coming because God will be faithful even in our unfaithfulness. How, how, how is Israel unfaithful? You ask the question. That's a good question. Thank you for asking that. Malachi chapter 1, 13 says this. He begins the unfaithfulness of Israel. He says, but you say, what is weariness is this? And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick. And you bring, and this you bring as, an, as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand? Says the Lord, cursed be the cheat who has male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifice to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Some translate that 
In verse 13, what a burden. Speaking of their offerings to God. What a burden. And they offer half-hearted offerings. They're lame. They're sick. It's burdensome them. They've lost sight of the greatness and the majesty of this great God and their giving because that is what they are supposed to do rather than from a heart of thanksgiving. You see, our giving should say something about the greatness of our God. 2 Samuel 24, 24, and, 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 and we've, we've kind of studied this a while back, but David was an extravagant giver. This is what David says, I will not give unto the Lord that which costs me nothing. That's the opposite of what we see in Malachi here. The people were religious, meaning they were performing their religious duty. They were seeking their own gain. They were giving their leftovers. They're sick, they're lame. Malachi brings the second act of unfaithfulness for God's people. Some of these things kind of step on our toes. I know it stepped on my toes a little bit, but Malachi 2, 13, it says this, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves and your spirit and let None of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The second act is their behavior in their marriage. If you read a few verses before, you'll see many of the men had married foreign women who worshipped other gods. They found them attractive, and some were even divorcing the wives of their youth to marry some of these women. Two things here, real quickly. It's not our text. Love to preach on this, probably 10 weeks, but I don't have the time. The marriage covenant speaks of here was made before God as it is a reflection of God's love. The oneness reflecting the oneness of God. You see that in the text, the one, the one over and over again there. We see it again in the New Testament as the marriage relationship pictures the love that Christ has for his church. The extravagant, unconditional, agape love. Your marriage shows the gospel to other people. Through your love, people are seeing God's love. He also shows this very interesting point here that the primary purpose, one of the primary purposes of marriage is to raise godly offspring or godly children. The next generation that follows God. So the people 
They've turned from God-glorifying marriages to self-centered marriages. What can I get out of this relationship? They have made it all about themselves, and the fruit of that has led them to divorce and children who are more of an accessory rather than an investment for the kingdom of God. All right, summarizing that. Church, we must be reflecting the love that God has for us in our marriages. The third unfaithfulness of God's people, so the first unfaithfulness was just going through the motions in our giving. The second was not giving in our marriage. The third unfaithfulness is found in Malachi 3.13. It says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is profit of our keeping His charge of walking as in the morning? before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant, blessed, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. It's unbelief. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Many of you haven't gone over the cliff to unbelief in your life. But doubt has creeped in your heart and your mind It's begun to rob you of your joy and made your worship dull. Malachi 2.16, it says, the people have wearied God by asking, where is the God of justice? It's unbelief from the people. Does God still love us? Why does this person prosper and I am not? Is God not fair? Where is the God of justice? even says in verse 14, it is vain to serve God. You see, God is still faithful in the midst of an unfaithful people. And the answer is Christ. He says, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. Return to me and I will return to you. And he asks the question here at the end of this verse 7. He says, how shall we return? But you say, how shall we return? And he begins with the question in verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions, you are cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This is the second point this morning. So God is faithful even in midst of his people's unfaithfulness. That's the same in our life. God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. That is why he loved us so much to send Christ. The second point this morning is trust the Lord with his money. It's very key here. Understand, trust the Lord with his money. So interesting. The Lord is calling his people to return to him through giving. This series has really challenged me. Often I preach on on things, and the Lord speaks to my heart. He challenges my heart along with the people of God, how this thought process flips our worldview upside down 
to see what this world is all about. It's not about me, it's about him. It's about his glory. It changes the narrative that I have in my own life from what do I have to give to what can I give. A couple things to mention here in this text, verses 8 through 10. It's very clear that God gives to you, therefore you give to him a tithe or a tenth back to him. You see, God does not need our money. I I began our sermon a couple of weeks ago with this. God does not need our money. He's the one that opens the storehouses or the windows in heaven in which he wants to bless you until there is no more need. I mentioned at the beginning of this series, and I think I need to mention again, but the Lord has blessed this congregation. We are full of givers. John prayed earlier. We're full of people who have given and sacrificed much for the kingdom of God here at Northwest. If you're a guest this morning, we're speaking about the people that are committed into community with one another here. We're speaking to the members. They're responsible for the giving of the local body of Christ. And I also want to say this, if you're a member who's been hurt in the past by a pastor or someone or a TV evangelist or someone asking for your money, please use these principles in other areas of life. We, we want you to have a heart for giving. That is our whole goal in here. We're not trying to raise our money or raise more money. Apply the principles elsewhere. This is treasuring our God. The other thing I must mention in this text is it's, it is clearly God's money. He says, you are robbing me. Literally, that means taking what is not yours. Literally walking up to the bank with your ski mask on and going, I'm going to take some money now. We don't often think of that like that. But tithing or giving a tenth is literally trusting God with his money. When you do that, you give your first and your best. You're saying, I trust you, that you are faithful. I trust in your provision. It is all yours, and my first love is you. Now, I, I understand there's a lot of reasons or excuses or different things that I myself give, other people give, for not trusting God with his money. Jesus addresses two of the main issues or the two of the main excuses in the area of giving money. Usually these two areas are separated, but people are attracted to one another. Usually they come about in their marriage, right? And so my wife and I are different in the way that we see money or handle money. And uh, I won't tell you which one we are, but I'm sure you can guess. You have the saver and you have the spender, okay, right? Usually those two people are attracted to one another and they end up marrying. Most likely the saver is mostly concerned with security. 
need to store up for the rainy day? What about the 401k, the IRA, the 403b, the Roth IRA, the C3PO, the kids college fund, the emergency fund, the HSA, right? You got all those. They're concerned about the security. It's that security, the high value of security. Then you have the, the spender who is mostly concerned with beauty, right? We need to spend a little bit. Upgrade, right? Yeah. Got it? Might as well spend it. This person likes to upgrade and enjoys nice things. A few sermons ago, uh, this person doesn't like to skimp on chicken noodle soup, basketball shoes, or contact solution. You can tell who that is. Jesus addresses both of these people in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. They don't, they don't store anything up. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Jesus is speaking to the saver, those who place their trust in the security of money. He's saying, trust me with your money. Now, let me be clear. You have to take all of Scripture. Scripture, it's very clear. It's good to save money with the right heart. Proverbs 13, 22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. It's a wise man. But we don't save money because we fear the future. This is where giving comes in. When we give freely and joyfully, then the power of money is broken in our life and we have found God to be a better source of security and delight than money. I'm not a give it all away to the poor type of guy. I see in Scripture that the Spirit of God must guide the sacrifices that we make and the stewardship that we have. But I believe in trusting God with His money through giving extravagantly. You see, when giving leads our hearts, then saving becomes more joyful as well because it's glorifying to God. It's a heart issue. Not how much do I have to give, but how much can I give? And what about the person who likes nice things, right? I can relate to you. You like to upgrade their things every so often. Jesus says, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory, the richest man ever to live, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God is the one that we place our trust in, not our beauty, not our clothing, not in our material possessions. We find pleasure in our God for providing for us. Jesus says, seek me first. Don't let your material possessions drive your life. 
But you know that. God knows that you also need them. Now, you can also take this way too far and say, oh, I'm going to deprive myself and my kids of everything. No, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Psalm 104, David says, God has given food and wine for us Baptist fruit juice to gladden the hearts of man, okay? He's given us food and wine to gladden our hearts. 1 Timothy 6, 17, For as the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides for us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I love this line in, in 1 Timothy 6. It says, God provides us with everything to enjoy. God provides for our enjoyment. So when I bite into a nice juicy steak or go on vacation to hear the sound of the waves on the beach, I'm enjoying the good things that God has provided. But my trust and my heart is not in them. It is in the great God who has given them to us. Giving helps guard our hearts to worship this God and enjoy the things that He has given to us. So God speaks to the saver or the person that is concerned with security. He speaks to the spender or the, the person that is concerned with beauty. And He says, I am your security. I am your beauty. Trust in me and give and so that you can enjoy the things that God has given to you. So we look and see that when God has given our first, when we have given our first and our best with a heart of thanksgiving, will God not bless us? As it says, put me to the test. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. See, now it's a hard issue. You don't give so that you will receive. You give as a response to the grace of God. But guess what? The fruit of a life with Christ, a life aligned with what God wants to do, the fruit is blessings of God in our life. Rich blessings of God. Verse 11. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord. I titled this last point, Give as a Response to the Grace of God. Give as a response to the grace of God. There's something in verse 9 that we didn't cover. I'm going to cover it real quick. It says, you are cursed with a curse. The last words of Malachi and the, the last of the book, it ends with the words, a statement that destruction is coming unless I act. That's what he says. You're cursed with the curse. 
And guess what? God acts. And he acts here in verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer. I will not destroy the fruits of your soil. God is the one that's doing it. All the nations will call you blessed. And guess what? God acts 400 years later. The word takes on flesh and makes his dwelling among men. He comes to reverse the curse. The devourer, I will rebuke. You will have fruit and the nations will call you blessed. Galatians 3.8 says this, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. The nations will call you blessed. What a beautiful picture of the fulfillment of the promises of God. Guess what? He wants us to take this gospel, this good news to the nations so they will see the faithfulness of God, the greatness and the mercy and the grace of God. You see, God acts in the midst of our sin, our rebellion, and he comes to give us life through giving up his. Therefore, our response to the great gift is a response of giving. Not under compulsion, not under the law, but because of his majesty and his power and his love for us. 1 Corinthians 16 says this, It says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. That word gift, in the Greek, is charis. It is also the word for grace. It is, in fact, a grace-giving. Not under compulsion, or because you have to, but because you want to. It is truly a gift, an offering, to the Lord. Now we've done a lot here, covered a lot of ground in Malachi. We've covered a lot of ground in in giving in the last three weeks. And you may say, well, what is this new pastor doing talking about giving? First few sermon series and such. I realize that it can be misconstrued. But my hope and my prayer is this, is that we will be a church that gives because the gospel is leading our hearts and our minds. That we are beholding the cross of Christ so much that our hearts would yearn to give to people, to give to our children, to give to our spouse, to give to our church. 
It would not be the mundane or, or just checking the box off or just doing it because I've always done it or just doing it because my parents did it. But our hearts would yearn that would, when we placed our check in the offering, it would not just be just because we have to do that, but because we want to do it. Our hearts and our minds would be so wrapped up in, in giving that that would be our response to the gospel of grace in our own life. I don't know about you, but it has changed my perspective I was talking to, um, I was actually at the bank the other day, and I was talking to this lady at the bank, and, you know, she was scurrying around trying to do something, and she messed up, and it wasn't going right, and the lady behind her goes, thank you so much for being nice. I was like, "What? what are you talking about? I'm just... But she saw that I was giving her grace. In the midst of my busy day and all the things I needed to do, I was giving this person grace. Just my time. My smile. And in response, she understood that I was giving to her something. Wasn't anything monetarily. Wasn't anything extravagant. In, in, in reality, I was giving. Instead of what do we have to do, what can we give? How can we glorify God with our life? Changes the question, doesn't it? Let us pray. Maybe we be a church that truly gives from a heart of worship. Father, we thank you for this series we know that it's been challenging our hearts and our minds. We know that as we read the scriptures, we see the truth of your word coming to life. We see, it, Father, our hearts being challenged. Father, to live and be led by the spirit of truth rather than be led by the world. Father, our children hear all the time that it's about you and what you want your desires, and your word tells us it is not about us. And Father, help us to remind ourselves daily that it is not about us by giving to other people the heart of worship, a heart of thanksgiving, a heart of joy. Father, may we be challenged even if we have never given before. May we be challenged to begin to give. Father, may we be encouraged if we are extravagant givers in this congregation. May we be encouraged to give unto You and that You, you receive our giving not because we are good, because of Christ.